What's up, everyone? This is Lito, and you're listening to Crypto Testers, a podcast keeping you informed about all the coolest projects in the crypto space. In this episode, I speak with Douglas Bakum from Shift Crypto, a Swiss hardware wallet company that is behind the Bitbox 02, a personal favorite of mine. I think hardware wallets are such an essential product in the crypto stack. And now that so many new people are entering the space, I wanted to make an episode covering the basics of how hardware wallets work, but also how they're going to evolve in the future. Douglas is a true crypto OG, and he did an excellent job at explaining everything. But before we jump into the show, I want to thank our sponsor, Bitwalla. Bitwalla is Germany's crypto flagship company. They offer users in Europe a full-fledged bank account, including deposit insurance and other things, as well as an integrated Bitcoin and Ethereum wallet. So using Bitwalla, you can move your money seamlessly between your euros and your crypto. They keep on adding new features such as their recently launched Bitcoin interest account, allowing users to earn interest on their Bitcoin. I highly recommend you check them out. I will post a link in the show notes. Hey, Douglas. Hi. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Very good. Yeah, it's really good to have you on the podcast. I've been wanting to do an episode on hardware wallets pretty much since I started this podcast. As you know, I'm a fan of your Bitbox hardware wallet and I ranked it first on our website. So yeah, good to have you here. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks a lot. Appreciate the kind words and hopefully we can entertain your listeners. For sure. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and why you started Shift? Sure. Maybe I can start with Shift. So at the beginning, right now we're called Shift Crypto, but at the beginning, the company name was actually Shift Devices. And I think explaining the name kind of can explain a bit why I started Shift. At the time, this was uh, in 2015, in October 2015. I was just looking around. I think Edward Snowden was in the news a lot. And I just felt that people were starting to care a bit more about privacy, like where their data goes online and things like that. And I felt that there's a building appreciation for that, but not really people changing their, their behavior. And I thought it wasn't because of a reason they didn't want to. I thought it was maybe more so that they just didn't have the tools to do that. And so I saw people kind of shifting perspectives. I think some examples since then are, you know, Apple, if you look at them, one of their primary marketing messages now is privacy. Same for Firefox and Brave browsers. That's one of their USPs and also government too, like the GDPR law in, in the European Union, now California, uh, right. where users have a right to control their own data. And so I, I think that's reality. But at the time, I didn't think, even now, I don't think there's really enough tools. And so I wanted to make a company to make devices that could help people not only shift their perspectives, but also shift their actions. And so I created Shift Devices. So that's very, very broad. Crypto seemed to be an obvious start. That's our full focus since the beginning. And this idea of helping people with their privacy and protect themselves online is kind of a, an overarching uh, goal. But then crypto, of course, is very interesting. It's extremely revolutionary. I think it's going to be super powerful. And I think one of the things it does that I'm very attracted to is it empowers individuals. And if you look at history, empowering individuals always leads to advances in society. Uh, you know, some, some obvious examples are like the printing press, where knowledge can be shared, and the internet makes it even more so. And I think cryptocurrencies uh, and Bitcoin starting that will be a, a game changer. And so I'm really interested in helping to empower people and basically equip them to more easily participate at a more practical level, you know, hardware wallets. So our company makes hardware wallets, which is the most secure way we believe to own cryptocurrencies. And there's a clear need for that. And getting more into before that, I guess I first heard about Bitcoin around 2013. I have a technical background and an academic background. I was actually a neuroscientist at the time. And before being a neuroscientist, I had some engineering. So I was a bit comfortable with like coding and, and technology. And I was really attracted to, I guess, the, the scientific problem that Bitcoin solved, which is the, the Byzantine generals problem. Basically, how can you trust, let's say, a bunch of Byzantine generals that are trying to plan an attack on a castle? 
how can you trust that they're giving you the right information about when to attack? Or if it comes to money on the internet, how can you trust that people you're talking to uh, somewhere else on the internet actually telling you the truth? And Bitcoin solved that. And so it basically allowed a way to not have to worry about trust, not have to worry about, is this person going to spend the money they sent to me somewhere else? Uh, and that was solved. And I thought that was really, really profound, and really, really special. And so to me, that's going to be completely revolutionary. And it's just a question of what, what the right implementation is that's going to fix that. But anyway, when I, I obviously bought some Bitcoin, uh, it took me about two weeks to actually feel comfortable holding it. And at the time, the concept of hardware wallets existed, but nothing was on the market. And so I thought, okay, there's an obvious, obvious need here for a solution. It'll help a lot of people. And so I started working on my spare time while I was uh, doing neuroscience during the day and went to some Bitcoin meetups here in, in Zurich and got some good feedback and met my co-founder at one of them, Jonas Schnelli, who happens to be, I guess, one of the more well-known people in the space. He's one of the Bitcoin core maintainers. And by coincidence, we lived in the same city and we decided to found the company and try to bring this to as many people as we could. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And this also brings up the question, since your first intuition was to build a hardware wallet or to tinker with it, at, at that point it wasn't a company, I guess, but more you um, playing on your own and then with, with a founder. But why does it make so much sense to create a hardware wallet to store cryptocurrency? Yeah, to be honest, my first intuition was to try to trade <laughs> and try to figure out some like algorithms to, to do automatic trading and things like that. I quickly realized that that's a full-time job if you actually want to make money. Otherwise, it's really, really easy to lose money. Having an engineering background, I kind of like to, to build things, make, gotcha. things, make things work. And so I started working on hardware wallets. And also, you know, again, coming from an academic background, I like to understand the technology behind it. Uh, and so when I was making the hardware wallet, I even decided instead of using some existing cryptographic libraries, I'd just try to write my own just to see, you know, what it means, what's required and things like that. Of course, the, the library is extremely slow, extremely buggy, but I, I learned a lot doing that. Yeah, and it was fun. So it was fun to play with that. And I think why are hardware wallets needed? Simply put, it's, in my opinion, uh, I think the, the majority opinion is the safest way to own cryptocurrencies. You know, people in general, one of the first things they think about is, how do I buy? Which makes sense. It's only later when they actually, I guess, start to think of security. And I think one of the key different concept, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies compared to like the US dollar, the Swiss franc or the euro. And that is this idea of gone is gone. Like if you make a mistake sending money, oftentimes you can, you know, reverse the transaction. If it's on a credit card, even wire transfers, you can get the money back. But in Bitcoin, if you send it to the wrong place, that system doesn't really exist. And so uh, this is also a reason, you know, it's, it's a completely different level in terms of security when it comes to hackers. So if a hacker can take your coins, their, their bank account can't get blocked. There's no bank account. It's all decentralized. It's all permissionless. And so if you make a mistake or someone hacks you, it's gone. And... Once you start to understand this concept, you're going to appreciate the security risks a lot more. And again, hardware wallets are the safest way to own cryptocurrencies. I guess when, when you first buy cryptocurrencies, usually you do that on an exchange. And a lot of people leave their coins on exchanges. But one of the common sayings is not your keys, not your coins. So the exchange owns your keys. And if they make a mistake with those keys, your coins are gone. And so exchanges in the past, there's been billions lost, the famous Mt. Cox incident, uh, and lots and lots of others. There's hacks, uh, but more so than hacks, there's also just exit scams. There's, a, I guess, a year ago, maybe, an exchange in Canada where the exchange owner was the sole possessor of the, the key. Yeah, that story is really, really bad. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, not the only one. Yeah. And so the, the story, supposedly he died in, in India. And then all of the coins on the exchange are locked and gone. And there's some more recent examples, uh, not necessarily the coins gone per se, but the coins are frozen. So I guess OK Exchange, if I pronounce it right. OKX, I think. Yeah. Is that yeah, right? Yeah. So they got their coins frozen by the government. And BitMEX, for example, all of the management team is uh, under an arrest warrant in the U.S. 
is still running, but there's these risks of seizure by governments or just freezing. So maybe your coin, you can't access your coins for a long time. And so exchanges just have this, this inherent counterparty risk that's quite significant and also due to this gone being gone. So like another option then that people turn to is just a software wallet. So like an app on your phone or an app on your desktop. But the problem there is your mobile phone desktops, they're really designed to be open. So you can install any software you want on it. There's lots of updates and so on. And they're really, really easy for hackers to put malware in there. And there's lots of examples of people being hacked that way. So the best way then is trying to figure out a solution where you don't have your, your private key. So just to explain that, like if you own cryptocurrencies, the cryptocurrencies are, I guess, more technically accurate to say they're on the blockchain. So in, in the public database, and what you have is a key to that blockchain, kind of like a key to your, to your front door. And so you control the ability to move it somewhere else. And so if, again, if someone else has a key, then they also have that ability to move it somewhere else. And so you need to protect that key very, very carefully. And we think the best way to do that is to just never let this key touch your computer, touch the internet, you possess it. And the way to do that is with hardware wallets. And so what a hardware wallet is basically is like a miniature single purpose computer. And so there's a microcontroller, like a mini computer on the device. It generates your private key using various sources of entropy. When you want to send coins somewhere, basically you, you write a contract on your computer or your mobile phone. The contract is basically send one coin to this person, this address. You send that into the hardware wallet. Hardware wallets usually have a screen. You can confirm that what you're actually doing is what you want to do. And then you use the key to sign it, so a signature. The key never leaves the device, but then the signature leaves the device. And that signature, due to cryptographic magic, can't be changed. And that's it. And then you can move the coins. You can send them to somewhere else. The hardware wallet is connected to the app on the computer or on the phone via any means like USB or Bluetooth. That depends from one hardware wallet to another, but that's mm -hmm. generally how it works, right? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Yeah, I think that was a really good explanation of what a hardware wallet is and why it's needed. Also very good analogy to explain what a private key is. I haven't had that one. Can you maybe walk us then through the features of the Bitbox 02? So that's the, the flagship device of your company. What features does it offer that make it stand out or more generally, what makes a good hardware wallet? So the Bitbox, as you said, is our hardware wallet product. Just a little bit of history of the company. So we founded the company in 2015. and 2016, we came out with the Bitbox 01, originally called the Digital Bitbox. And that was on the market for a while. And then the Bitbox 02 is its successor. And that was released, I guess, about a year and a half ago. And so we took a lot of lessons that we learned from the Bitbox 01 in terms of security and what people liked, what people didn't like, and we made the Bitbox 02 out of that. And we think the Bitbox 02 has quite strong advantages in, in both usability and security. I can dig in a bit in detail on those. In terms of usability, we get quite positive feedback on the overall user experience, just simply from the unboxing where we include all that you need in order to get started, cables, adapters, for whatever setup you have. The, the Bitbox 02 connects by USB-C. So USB-C is the, the port that's in basically all new computers and most mobile phones. So you can use it with a mobile phone also. And I think one of the unique features is, is a couple of them. One of them is the setup process. And so we use a micro SD card for making a backup. And you can set up the wallet within very, very simply within a, a few minutes. Whereas if you look at other, basically all the wallets, they set a process can take 20 minutes, 30 minutes. It's quite stressful. It involves writing down a set of words. The words are called a mnemonic word list. And these words are basically the backup to your wallet. Especially for new users, there's confusion behind what a mnemonic word list actually is, what it means. And there's a lot of anxiety. We call it, I guess, mnemonic anxiety, <laughs> where 
you know, it, it's, it's extremely stressful writing down all these words, trying to make sure you do every, every letter correct, because if you could make, mix up the words and not have access to your funds again. It takes a long process, and then typing it into a hardware wallet uh, is also quite tedious. And so we, we can basically eliminate all of that with just storing a backup, which is a very simple concept, onto a micro SD. And so for people who still want to have you know, some redundancy, we do offer the ability to write down a mnemonic word also. But I think this is, this is one example of us trying to focus really hard on, uh, on the user experience, because I think to empower individuals, it's not only security, but it's you know, ease of use. Yeah. I can confirm the smoothness of the microSD backup. I think that's what really kind of convinced me of the Bitbox device doing the sign-up or, or yeah, what the setup more specifically, yeah. because often these other hardware wallets, they make you, as you said, write down a seed phrase. Yeah. And then to make sure that you wrote down the seed phrase correctly, Because, again, the seed phrase is super important. All your funds are tied to that seed phrase. So to make sure that you wrote them correctly, they make you type those words in again. But since the device is super small, it is really, really stressful writing down 24 words on a super small USB-sized device. So this with the micro SD card, you just basically plug it in into the Bitbox, then take it out, and the seed phrase is, is on it, and you can store the micro SD card wherever you want, like you would store the seed phrase. And I think maybe it's even safer because let's say some, an attacker goes into your house. If they find a seed phrase written on a piece of paper, they, they would likely take it, whereas a little micro SD card doesn't Quite look like much. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, happy to hear that. I think that's that's one big thing that we found people really liked with, with the old Bitbox that we kept. Another thing people liked with the old Bitbox was the touch button. We had an invisible touch button, a capacitive touch button. We turned that into two touch sliders. And we think it gives a, a quite innovative user experience of actually using the hardware wallet. And so like you said, if you have a hardware wallet, you need to interact with it. You need to push buttons to confirm things. You need to enter passwords, enter seed words, and so on. And uh, we do that with this touch slider mechanism. It can be buttons or sliders. Uh, a lot of people, when, when they first see it, they expect it's not very intuitive or maybe it's difficult to use, but we're quite positively surprised by how easy it is after like just playing with it for a little bit. And then I guess another thing is just hardware design itself. So a lot of users appreciated, yeah, you, you mentioned with the micro SD card, You know, it's, it's very nondescript. People aren't going to recognize it. And so we tried to do that also with the device itself, try to make it very discreet. Uh, we think it looks uh, slick and, and so on, but we try to make it so that it, people just uh, think right away that it's a USB device rather than a hardware wallet. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about how a hardware wallet works? Because I looked, for example, on your website where mm -hmm. you described or you differentiated the Bitbox 02 Uh, compared to other devices on the market. And there's a, a few cat uh, characteristics that are always mentioned when, when comparing hardware wallets. So one of them is a secure chip. Then you have things like multi-sig. Some hardware wallets offer it, some others not. What are some of the most important features in that regard? Yeah, so the Bitbox does have a secure chip. It does offer multi-signature support. It's uh, mainly a Bitcoin thing right now. But I think the both of those are interesting topics. The security, to get a little bit more technical, something I'm personally quite happy about. <laughs> I think I think it's it's quite 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 fun. So we use um, what we call a dual chip approach, and so it's what we think is kind of a best of both worlds approach. And so. If you look at the hardware wallet space, the two main competitors, two main players are Ledger and Trezor. And they're each on opposite spectrums of security architecture in that sense. So whereas Trezor does not have a secure chip, they only use a general purpose microcontroller, general purpose microcomputer. Ledger, on the other hand, uses a secure chip mainly. And the problem with general purpose microcontrollers are they're not designed for physical security. And so it's relatively easy to basically take the chip, if, for example, if you steal the device and mm -hmm. um, get the secrets out of it. And so there's some countries around the world where reverse engineering is legal. And so you can send 
a microcontroller there and they can basically use some equipment to read out all of the bits. And so they know basically everything on the secure chip. And so obviously if you're only using that and you have your, your seed phrase, your seed on there, then they can know your wallet basically and take your funds. And so this is a reason why Trezor doesn't consider physical theft to be part of their security model. Okay. Yeah, which which I think that should be part of the security model for hardware wallets. Mm-hmm. And I think they're, they'll be working on uh, solutions to that in the future, I'm sure. Ledger, on the other hand, uses the secure chip, which is great. It's designed to prevent it or uh, basically make it very, very difficult. When a security researcher says make it very, very difficult, what that means is... Um, virtually impossible. Virtually <laughs> impossible, yeah. Make it either very, very expensive or very, very time-consuming, so that, such that it's just not worth anyone's effort to try to break it. And I would say if, if you ever hear any hardware wallet manufacturer or security company in general saying something is hacker-proof or completely impenetrable, uh, just run away. <laughs> and so in security, everything can get hacked. It's kind of like a cat and mouse game. So you just have to be, be on your toes and continuously doing security audits, continuously self-assessing and so on and improve things. That said, hardware wallets are by far the safest solution. It's just not possible with with software wallets. So to touch back on on Ledger, they're using the secure chip, but the problem is they're basically only using the secure chip. And by that, I mean, they're running all of the the cryptocurrency logic on the chip itself. Mm -hmm. And the issue there is that these types of chips usually have a certification, which sounds really good when you put it on your website from a marketing point of view. But the issue with certification is, one, it requires you to have closed source code. Trezor is very good. They can have open source code, which is great. But the problem with closed source code is more so the problem with the certification process, which can take you know, millions of dollars to go through. It can take a year time or longer. And the issue here is that if a bug is found, and this has happened in the past, the company that manufactures the chip has incentives not to fix it. They don't want to fix it. And the reason for that is if they do fix it, they'd have to go through the certification process again, which means another uh, year to market, another mm-hmm. million dollars. Uh, and so there's just incentive to kind of ignore things. And that's why they require non-disclosure agreements with anyone writing code on the device or anyone using the device. And I think, again, it comes back to this idea of gone is gone. So maybe with ATM cards, it's okay because there's some some extra protections in place. But when it comes to cryptocurrency, you know, where... One mistake, if there's a mistake, you know, it happens one in a million times, you know, there's more than a million users of cryptocurrencies, a lot more, that, you know, you're going to lose your your funds. And I think that just makes the stakes higher and it just makes it a complete no-go to go that route. Just to be sure, I'm getting this right. So the secure chip that is certified that companies like Ledger are using, they are not produced by Ledger themselves, but by a third party that manufactures them as a service and they basically then have little incentive to innovate on that front because the process to make some changes and then get the new chip certified again takes one to two years and involves a lot of R&D and and money. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, it's important to note that these chips, of course, uh, are made by large fabrication plants, uh, different companies, and they're available for the market for security applications uh, for just you know running little toy cars around also you can use uh, microcontrollers for that also when a hardware wallet company says that they're certified they're not certified uh, just the chips they're using are certified and to loop back around to the bitbox so how do we handle that i think we have a, a quite quite nice concept where we use a general purpose microcontroller like trezor for running the cryptocurrency logic that allows us to use open source code. And we only use open source code that's been really, really well vetted. That's been out in the wild. There's a lot of eyes looking at it. For example, the Bitcoin LibSecP cryptographic library is one of them. And then we also do have a secure chip, but we don't run any cryptocurrency logic on it. We only use it for hardening access to the device. And so I think in that case, you can get the advantages of, of both sides. Uh, which I, I think is quite nice. Just to dive down a little bit deeper, something I think is interesting, uh, how that works a little bit. So we actually require three different secrets stored in three different locations in order to access the wallet. 
access the wallet means to decrypt the seed. And these secrets are stored in different places. One is on the microcontroller itself. One is on, actually a couple are on the secure chip. And then there's one that's not on the device at all, which is in your head. So uh, the user password to the device. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is even if someone steals a BitBox, there's still not enough data on the device to actually recreate your seed, which I think is really good. And then we also use a secure chip. So if someone does steal it, they'd have to basically brute force attack your password in order to unlock the device. And the secure chip offers a couple of protections to prevent that also, making it very time consuming to attack. So when you start up your BitBox, you run your password through the secure chip. The password does some cryptographic operations on it called key stretching, and that takes a defined amount of time. And so if someone, for example, uh, to put it in easier to understand words, if you use an eight character password, it's going to take an attacker about 1,000 years before they would be able to brute force it. And then we also limit the number of attempts such that we basically cap the number of attempts uh, using a monotonic counter. That's just a, a counter that counts in one direction. And they would run out of attempts within a couple of days also. Um, mm-hmm. And so that would basically freeze the secure chip. But it's, it's a high enough number that you could use uh, the BitBox for your whole life. You don't have to worry about running out. It's just for brute force prevention. That does seem very safe. I mean, since you are arguably a security expert, what are some common attack vectors that you have experienced? Maybe from users that have the Bitbox 2 device, but maybe also other hardware wallets or just in, in general, people who own cryptocurrency. What, what are some yeah, common attack vectors? Or let's, let's focus on, on hardware wallets maybe. And, and what are some security best practices to yeah, prevent those attacks from happening? Yeah, so there's been a number of attacks published. I think, I think there's even a website, I forget, I forget the name of it, that actually tracks it and lists list all of them. So you can go there, go there and see. They range from very simple things to very impressive, complicated things. And you know, basically, all of the competition that's been on the market has been hacked in one way or another. Ledger, Trezor, ourselves, uh, others. And the, the hard part with cryptocurrency security products is really there's not so many security experts that have a good domain knowledge of the space. And so a lot of the attacks are, are logical, like logical attacks, so attacking the, the logic that is used to, to run the, the cryptocurrencies. And the hackers, you know, if you go to a security, there's a lot of security companies in the world, they'll, they'll audit your device, but they're, they don't really have the domain expertise to understand, you know, the crypto logic. So I think it's very important to be able to find some people with that expertise. Um, one example is Salim Rashid, who's probably the, the best, I guess, white hat hacker out there with respect to hardware wallets. Um, he has a nice website, nice Twitter handle. Uh, you can kind of see some of the things he's done. And yeah, it's interesting. He's, he was basically yeah, a teenager when he was hacking all these things, but by far the, the most skilled at it. Wow. And yeah, like some, some things that like he found in our original Bitbox 01 hardware wallet that we've learned from was it's probably not a good idea to store the, the secret itself in the secure chip when you're using a dual chip architecture because you have to get the secure you have to get the secret from the secure chip to the MCU and then you can do some invasive probing of the the logic lines to basically have some access to it and if you're not using the right encryption you're not using the right um, protection there it could be exposed and so on and so on I would say I, I guess that's that's one class of attacks looking at the logic. A different class is uh, something called side channel analysis, where this is yeah really interesting. So basically, the classic example is using radio frequencies, like grab an antenna, point it at a mobile phone or point it at a hardware wallet. And you can, based off of um, the, the computation that's occurring, you're going to get different electromagnetic waves coming out and you can just plot it on an oscilloscope and you can basically read out zeros and ones. Uh, so the bits of a secret uh, mm-hmm. doing that. And that's just due to um, the power usage. So it's power analysis, the power usage of the microcontroller when it's running code. 
Yeah, that's so, crazy. Yeah, and so it's it's not only radio frequencies; it's also things that could be like sound, so like small vibrations uh, can be picked up, and so on and so on. And I mean, one that people often forget about is just even you know video cameras. So if you're, mm. uh, it's not maybe not so much uh, an issue of the hardware, wallet, but an issue of how you use it, the UX. So if you're entering a seed like this mnemonic seed again on the screen, if there's a camera there, a hidden camera someone can see what your seed is and then basically recreate it and recreate your keys and steal your funds. Yeah. I have read about these attacks on an article. I can't remember exactly where it was, but it seems like it's largely kind of theoretical, uh, a debate among security experts who research and find, like you said, some logical flaws and attack vectors. But in, in reality, are there some attacks that you know of that happen a lot to people who store their crypto in hardware wallets? Or is it in practice relatively rare that something happens? So I would say I'm not aware of any attack actually leading to lost funds, but I am aware of attacks that could have. So uh, there's a number of attacks that have been demonstrated by, by white hat hackers, fortunately. And they've been fixed before they've actually been exploited in the wild. So that for sure happens. I'm not prepared to go, to go into specific examples, but uh, again, maybe we can link in your podcast to uh, direct users there. Yeah, for sure. No, because I often have the feeling that security experts talk so much about these hacks that to end users, it might seem like hardware worlds are unsafe. Yeah. But in reality, those hacks are completely yeah, unexploited and just discussed amongst whitehead hackers. And in reality, from what I've heard, like, and I, I talked to a lot of crypto users, nothing has ever happened. So just for any listeners wondering, like hardware wallets <laughs> are v very, very safe, at least yeah, compared that's... to any other means of storing crypto. That, that's a good point. I'm happy you said that. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah once, you, once you get in the space, of course, you dig down, you dig down, you dig down, you try to find, you, you see more and more of the problems. But yeah, exactly right. Uh, I'm not aware of any of these hacks being exploited in the wild. Actually, the, the more dangerous thing is people forgetting their password. I would say mm -hmm. that, that's the issue where, where people lose funds. Yeah. And then I'd also add, you know, nothing can't be hacked. But again, hardware wallets make it really, really difficult. And if you compare it to software wallets, it's, it's no contest. So it's just a yeah. thousand times, a million times harder with hardware wallets. Quick shout out to our sponsor, Stakewise.io. Stakewise is a really cool ease to staking provider. They take care of all the heavy lifting involved in the staking process. Basically, they offer two options to stake. Pooled staking, where you can stake any amount and you can withdraw your staked ease at any point. Or solo staking, where you need a minimum of 32 ETH and you have your own validator node hosted by Stakewise and maintained by Stakewise, but you also have full control over the funds. So there's two options depending on your needs and preferences. I really recommend you check them out at stakewise.io. They have an incentivized testnet going on at the moment where you can get familiar with the user experience of the whole staking process using fake ETH or testnet ETH, and they will go live with a production app in the next couple of weeks. Do you have any estimate on how large the hardware wallet market is? I mean, we know that there are more and more Bitcoin and Ethereum holders or users, and we also know that there's an increasing amount of crypto moving off exchanges mm -hmm. into self-custody, so into mm -hmm. wallets that are controlled by the user. Are these people buying hardware wallets? Do you have any impressions, uh, any numbers? Yeah, it's hard to say. So I guess I just more have impressions and speculation. Although I would say there is a, a hard number from the last bull run, bubble if you want to call it that, uh, <laughs> in 2017, 2018. So I believe Ledger published that they had sold about one and a half million hardware wallets when the, the hype was happening. So in a period of maybe half a year, it's a big number, but it's, it's not that big compared to you know, the population and the adoption. 
since then, it's been quite dead as, as the price cratered, but still a significant amount of, of people buying. And I would say now that the price is getting higher, I, I see, I guess today, Bitcoin is at an all-time high for market cap. That's it's been crazy in the last weeks. There's a lot of yeah coins coming off of exchanges, but we don't we don't necessarily see that that is like retail adoption at the moment. It seems like it's more industry companies uh, adoption happening, and you know you can you can judge that a bit like very very roughly just by looking at Google keyword trends. I guess as of a couple of days ago, I don't know today, but like the keyword search for Bitcoin which is a good bellwether for cryptocurrencies in general. The keyword search for Bitcoin was still basically at its low baseline, like 10% mm. of what it was uh, uh, three or four years ago. And what we we also experienced three or four years ago is that the, the retail market seemed to lag behind the actual price by about a month or two uh, okay. in, both dire- in both directions. So both on the way up and on the way down. And so from our... I guess our speculation, our insights right now, uh, we think that it hasn't really, like the the FOMO, if you want to call it that, the fear of missing out from retail investors hasn't really kicked in yet. Right. So you don't see a direct correlation between price and number of sales. Yeah, it's hard to say because the, the, the Bitbox one's only been out for a year and a half. So I'd say we don't have enough data. Mm-hmm. Obviously, our sales are increasing, but it's hard for us to say if that's due to, um, you know, just more people being aware of us versus the, the price going up. Yeah. Obviously, the name that comes to mind in the hardware world business, and we've mentioned it already, is Ledger. I checked on LinkedIn. They have over 200 employees and next to their retail product, they, uh, so the, the hardware wallet, they also have a custody business. Mm. So where they offer like custody of bitcoins for large institutions, so obviously they're they're really big and and have uh, well known in the space. Is it hard to compete against s- such a big company? Do you feel? Yeah, sure. You, you look at them; it's impressive. They, they've done a good job. They had a, a strong founding team, uh, and made a good product. Uh, and so I think they're to be applauded for that. We're not afraid of competing against them. I think if you look. One of the main reasons is that we're still quite early. So it's still quite early in the overall adoption. So I think the, the market is, uh, that exists now is going to be a lot smaller than the market that's coming up in the next years. And so and we've, we've been around long enough and you know, have gone through enough experiences, uh, enough learnings where we feel quite confident in our products. We think our products can stand on their own compared to others, both in terms of being superior and ease of use and also in the security concept. So for us, it's, you know, uh, an issue of just building up our brand awareness. And so that's where Ledger can have a significant advantage in terms of uh, first mover and also the the marketing infrastructure they have in their own team. Mm. But I think that's something we find as a fun fun thing, a fun challenge yeah. that we're yeah. happy to attack. That's exactly my analysis as well. I think on the product front, you don't have to hide at all. In fact, I mean, I even think it's a superior product, if I can say that. But the advantage is clearly a branding one. They have a big marketing apparatus. I think one thing that also matters a lot for hardware wallets, besides the product, is the number of integrations into other products. Because hardware wallets can not only be used in combination with the Ledger app or the Bitbox app, they can also be used with a range of third-party wallets, exchanges, and and other tools really that exist. Uh, For example, the Ledger can be used in combination with Metamask, which is the most widely used Ethereum wallet, which runs in a browser, or for example, as a Guardian in Argent, which is a mobile Ethereum wallet. Are you working on integrations like this? Yes, for sure. So I guess this is where Ledger has an advantage with a large number of employees also, but um, we're very, very interested in third-party integrations. We have a few. We're in conversations to add more, but then, yeah, it's just a matter of resources for uh, not only us, but also the third parties. And so, yeah, I mean, I guess if anyone's listening to the podcast and you think, you know, a Bitbox could, integration could help with your project, please contact us. 
uh, we'd be very happy to talk. Some of the things we already have is a JavaScript API. So it allows uh, very quick access for web applications. So my Ether wallet, we're supported there, for example. Mm. Bitcoin specific, we've been in Electrum for a long time. Uh, we've also recently been in the HWI, the hardware wallet interface, which mm -hmm. is a, a project to basically make um, a tool where hardware wallets can connect. The HWI handles all the logic and then it's a standardized interface for other Mm -hmm. to yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Is that would that just be for Bitcoin or also other blockchains? Yeah, that's only only for Bitcoin. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that works for Bitcoin Core, Wasabi Wallet, uh, a bunch of new multi-sig wallets coming out, Nunchuck, Lily, Spectre, and so on. Yeah, you mentioned Argent. That looks really cool. We're not there, but we'd love to be. Uh, you know, Frontier Wallet also. We've been talking a little bit with them. MetaMask. We'd be super interested in in adding. We've been in contact with them, but they're uh, I guess um, uh, supposedly their their guy that was responsible for hardware wallets left the team a few months ago, which is unfortunate. Mm -hmm. We hope when they, I, I guess, get get someone else assigned that we'll be able to pick that up. Yeah, and and so on, so on. So we're definitely interested in third party integrations. We have our own app that we're quite proud of, but we also think you know if if users have uh, different preferences, uh, sometimes these. Um, these other integrations allow uh, you know, more specific use cases, doing it well. So Argent, for example, we're very happy to, to work on that. Right. Yeah, because a hardware wallet has actually more utility than just being a crypto wallet, right? So in, in some cases, it can also be used for authenticating yourself on a completely non-crypto related web application like in theory, could even be used for logging into Facebook or your bank account or whatnot. So I think there's definitely some room for improvement on that front. Yeah, that's a good point. So I should mention that um, the Bitbox, also the Ledger and Trezor have uh, U2F support. So the FIDO U2F. So uh, you actually can use it to log into uh, Facebook or Gmail and things like that. Mm -hmm. Are you more focusing on these third-party integrations or on offering features like trading or lending natively in the Bitbox app? Yeah, I would say a bit of both. You know, the third-party integrations always requires coordination with the other team. Uh, so there's time delays just involved in the communication. We're, we're pushing that, but in the meantime, we also want to uh, continue focusing on our app, basically make it as easy as possible for users. So really like Simplicity is a focus for, for our app. Also, we'd really like it to be, you know, maybe more long-term, more of like a one-stop shop where, you know, users don't really have to leave the app to have access to, to the crypto space. So, for example, being able to buy and sell fiat currencies for, for cryptocurrencies, uh, exchanging cryptocurrencies, uh, you know, adding in uh, various DeFi options. Again, you know, I, I mentioned before about users when they first get in the space, they just want to know how to buy. Uh, and so having a solution we can give them, and this will be coming out very soon, where basically they can you know, say, hey, buy a Bitbox, uh, and then you're all set. You can buy Bitcoin, uh, and on the side, you also have state-of-the-art security. Um, mm -hmm. That's something we're aiming for. Is there some features that are already live in the Bitbox app? Because I only huddle my Bitcoin with the Bitbox app, but my Ethereum funds are in, in a MetaMask wallet, so mm -hmm. I don't check that regularly. Is there some trading features or buying crypto with fiat feature that is already part of the Bitbox app today? No, so buying will be coming out very soon, hopefully this year, uh, before the end of the year. No promises. <laughs> mm -hmm. But that will come out soon, and then shortly after, we'll have exchange also. So it's not there yet. In the app, we do have support for, for Bitcoin, also Ethereum, basically all of the tokens, and Litecoin. And so you can use those uh, natively inside the app also. Since you mentioned DeFi, what are your thoughts on it? I think it's exciting. I, I think if you look at uh, cryptocurrencies in general, they're meant to be money, basically. And so, of course, then it makes a lot of sense that you have some kind of financial services wrapped around it, some some DeFi, so decentralized finance. It seems very logical. Uh, I think, you know, crypto in general is all about cutting out the middlemen as much as possible, and that's always good. And so, you know, you can divert the profits from middlemen to directly to the users. So like higher rates of return for lenders, uh, lower rates if you borrow, lower transaction fees or 
essentially no transaction fees. So I think that's that's really cool. If you look at hardcore Bitcoin people, Bitcoin maximalists, uh, my co-founder Jonas is definitely one of them. Good <laughs> um, that I have you on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, we're we're a Swiss company, so we have we have to be neutral. <laughs> yeah. uh, but in general, like me personally, I don't have anything against other coins um, having a role. I think that's that's going to happen, and I, I think you know, Bitcoin maximalists. If you look at their language, they're quite critical of DeFi. I think that's justified to some extent because of the, the exploits that are occurring where people are losing money um, mm-hmm. because of um, the implementation, implementation wasn't up to high quality. But that said, it's, it's very early also. DeFi is even earlier. It's only been around, the word's only been around for what, a year, a year and a half, two years. And so eventually there will be high quality products, you know, high quality in terms of the security is set, high quality in terms of stability. Uh, so like, whoever makes the, the protocol is not going to have the wrong incentives where they could you know, change the code to switch the incentives or have an exit scam, for example. So to me, it's just, there's a lot of exciting projects out there right now. It'd be great to watch them grow. It's just a question of uh, the implementation. Yeah, I agree. I actually think the missions are very aligned because in the end, like you said, crypto is about replacing middlemen and doing things with that decentralized money and with bitcoin you can unfortunately only send and receive but you cannot lend or you know create more sophisticated financial instruments like options on on the bitcoin blockchain margin trading etc for all these things you need to use centralized bitcoin banks or exchanges so i think it, it makes total sense i personally am a fan of both but do you think that there's ways that Bitbox can leverage DeFi? Yeah, sure. So like you mentioned before, uh, hardware wallets, the Bitbox is, it, it's basically a device that lets you store private keys uh, securely and not lets you sign transactions. And so it can be applied, you know, anywhere where those functions are needed. And so DeFi, of course, uh, is one. And if you look at the current DeFi services, um, you know, Compound or Uniswap and so on, they're mainly done through web apps. Since they're decentralized, they need to connect to a wallet. And I guess mainly it's uh, MetaMask at the moment. But these software wallets, especially web-based wallets, are, are quite vulnerable to attacks and hacking, but also it's difficult to securely verify what you're doing. It's very easy to overlay stuff on a website to trick the user. You don't know where you're receiving funds. You don't can't be confident you're receiving them, for example. And so I think hardware wallets, Bitbox, uh, can, can leverage these quite well by directly integrating with the software wallets and adding the security by showing you on, on the hardware wallet itself and confirming on the hardware wallet itself that you're actually doing what you, what you think you should be doing. Yeah. Exciting. Yeah. In your current events, are you planning to support ETH 2.0 keys? Because the ETH2 network uses a different seed derivation method. So mm-hmm. people who want to use a hardware wallet to manage their ETH 2.0 validator node need to see that standard supported mm-hmm. in their hardware wallet first to, to be able to use it. Is that something you are looking into for the near future or are you planning to add that more when the network is in its finished state because we're only starting with the first phase zero yeah. in, in December and then other phases are going to happen later. Are you going to wait until it's more developed or planning to add support soon? Yeah, it's quite early. Short term, we're not going to add support, but definitely you know, supporting Ethereum 2 or whatever form Ethereum takes is uh, something we will for sure do. And it's just a question of getting a bit more stable, ironing out some some of the bugs and so on. But for sure, that's on our roadmap. Okay. Maybe to wrap it up, how do you plan hardware wallets to evolve in the midterm to long-term future? Do you think they will have a very big place in our society in the way we sign things, authenticate ourselves? Or do you think maybe that will be all integrated into our phone or even biometrics. What sort of developments do you see happening there? Yeah, I, of course I'm biased, but I, I think hardware wallets or devices like them will have a, a prominent role. 
And uh, this reminds me again of when, when I first started the company, this idea of empowering people and this idea of, uh, you know, privacy and what it means to have a life online. And I think each year goes by more and more of our lives are being put online. And it's this whole privacy thing, like uh, a lot of pushback I get when I, when I talk about this is, oh, everyone has Facebook and they just put all their data on Facebook and things like that. But there's certain types of data that you probably wouldn't even put on Facebook. Like, for example, do you, do you know many people who post their, their monthly bank statements on, on Facebook? I don't. Or post their medical records on Facebook? No. Or, no. you know, post their uh, passport ID or, you know, things like this. And so there is a certain class of data that privacy is, is important. Uh, I would argue, you know, it's, it goes beyond that, but, but just focusing on these things, I, I think there's no argument that these things are important. Uh, you know, more and more of this is getting put, on, put online. Governments want to give numbers to their citizens and keep that online so they can track them that way. And so I think as more and more data, more and more valuable data gets put online, there's going to be more and more of um, incentive for hackers to, to look for it and attack it. You know, with, with cryptocurrencies, it's, it's monetary. So, you know, there's more and more, um, it's going to be an issue. And so I, I think, you know, having it on a mobile phone, like you mentioned, uh, just is, is a no-go because it's so easy to hack. And even, you know, uh, phones say they have secure enclaves and things like that. Uh, but those have also been hacked. Um, they're not that secure. Of course, a lot better than without it. And so I think similar to how people have a physical key, most people for their car or their, their door to their apartment. And people have these keys to protect, you know, their property, their stuff inside the apartment, their, their car. I think it'll be a natural evolution that people need a key for a part of their digital life also. And I think that will need to be a physical key, just like you have a physical key for your house to actually functionally keep it safe. And I think, again, it's just a matter of implementation. So how do you make it you know, as easy as using a key to unlock your door? And so I, I, see, I see a strong, strong role. Yeah, I agree. I think there's definitely, I mean, like you said, f- phones are not the, the, the answer to everything there. I do anticipate hard worlds to become somehow a bit smaller or to integrate more smoothly into our existing devices or somehow become easier to, to use and carry around. But I definitely also see them playing a big role in the future. Yeah, that, w- that was super interesting. I think you did a very great job at explaining what hardware worlds are and why they're important. Yeah, I'm very excited to see what you guys are going to ship in the future. And I'm definitely rooting for you. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Hey, it's me again. I hope you liked this episode. If you did, please feel free to share it with your friends and family or give us a follow on Twitter or LinkedIn. And if you have some feedback, reach out to me. I'd love to hear it.